It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all areas. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you use. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kate Wenigal and I'm joined by my co-host today, Michael Steindl. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Tabea Listener from Germany, who's kindly given us some time on the way to the airport after presenting a paper today of 1.5 degrees of warming compared to 2 degrees of warming and the effects that would have globally. Dr. Listener leads climate analytics work in the field of socio-ecological systems and vulnerability. Her work focuses on the assessment of climate impacts with a special interest in human environmental systems and impact on societally important sectors. In this context, Dr Listener works on translating the various determinants of vulnerability into methods, which advance the comparability and transferability of results between regions, and which provide useful information to stakeholders and decision makers in especially vulnerable regions. She has a background in geography, political science and environmental management and holds a PhD from Humboldt University in Berlin, which she developed while working in the Climate Change and Development Group at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Hello, Dr. Listener. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We normally start off by asking you how you got to this point in your climate change journey. Can you tell us a bit about that? Of course. Um, so I started out studying geography because of my interest uh, of traveling and for, for different regions of the world. And uh, quite quickly, we also uh, talked about climate change in the studies, and I, I found that really interesting. And um, first thought I would go into politics uh, and went to um, to Brussels to, to work for the EU, but then quickly realized um, that actually the, the politics side wasn't really mine, but that I actually wanted to, to move more towards research and um, bring yeah scientific information to the policy process and um, through that ended up um, writing my my master's thesis at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and um, from there really my my kind of scientific career evolved in the field because I then stayed on to to do my my PhD at the Potsdam Institute and really got involved also there in in more the interface between um, climate science and policy, kind of the way that I initially um, thought I would, which is really lucky. And now I'm based in Berlin and work there for climate analytics. We're a non-for-profit organization and we really do work specifically at bringing um, science into the international negotiations, but also to other political processes related to climate change. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've been interested in science for a long time then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. So I've been I've been working in the in the field of climate change um more or less since 8 years. I would mm -hmm. say for now. The so. Potsdam Institute just in passing that's uh, world famous, isn't it? Uh, is, is that where Hans Sch uh, Schnellenberger was also the advisor to Angela Merkel mm -hmm. came from? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Shelley was the director of the of the Potsdam Institute, and right. he's been been quite involved in the international negotiations, also as a as a scientific advisor to the German government and to to the Holy See as well, actually. Mm. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, we've here in Australia, we've been very impressed with Germany's efforts in the climate change arena. Mm, both, both in leading and um, in practical implementation, where you get much more solar generation than us, and and your best spot is equal to about our worst on the west coast of Tasmania. Yeah, very mm. impressive. Yeah. So, you, um, Dr. Tamir, you've just presented to Melbourne University recently a, a paper on the difference between the one point five and two degree targets that were mentioned at Paris. Um, can you go into the two targets that were mentioned and, and give us the context for that, please? Yes, of course. So last December um, in Paris, the international community actually met again um, to to continue their negotiations on an international agreement and um, did actually um, manage to come to an agreement. And one of the central articles is the Article 2, which references, references specifically um, – that um, the the world should aim at keeping the global temperature increase well below two degrees, and also pursue efforts to actually limit global warming to one point five degrees. The two degree goal, or keeping global warming below two degrees, has actually kind of been going th- as a red thread through the negotiations um, since nineteen ninety six. And the inclusion of this much stricter target of one point five degrees actually surprised quite a lot of people. Um, that came to the table essentially in 2009 when the most vulnerable countries, including the small island states and the least developed countries, started calling for the stricter level, realizing really that um, that would be, well, maybe not a safe level of warming, mm-hmm. but much safer to um, safeguard their interests um, in the global community. Yeah, to give so them any chance, basically. Um, essentially, if you look at rising sea levels and and um, and um, yeah, coral degradation, for example, it's quite existential threats for for the small island states. So it's really quite an achievement that um, that the global community w- was able to to really agree on on these quite important targets. And that is also partly due to the fact that increasingly we have scientific knowledge that really shows what we would have to expect at these different levels of warming. And in the context of the negotiations, there was also a scientific review of the information that we actually currently have on these levels of warming. And that concluded that um, two degrees can definitely or cannot be considered a safe level of warming so that it would be an inadequate um, level of of warming to be considered safe. And that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees would really come with several advantages to to reduce the risks and impacts that are associated with climate change. And that's a very positive thing too, given that if you are able to discuss 1.5 degrees, that means we could possibly get to about one degree of warming if everybody was very serious about it. And there's hope in the future that that may be possible. Well, um, we are due to the due to the emissions that have already 
yeah, been uh, put into the atmosphere and, of course, the path dependency of, of, our, of our current development. We are um, somewhat committed to a certain level of warming. Um, so one degree is actually so the, the current levels of warming relative to pre-industrial are around one, one degree of warming already. So limiting um, it to that would essentially require emissions to be cut a heroic now. Effort. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, and impractical, um, the sort of thing we're likely to do based on current exactly. performance. Exactly. Which is some, something that people so. don't realise, that um, even if we cut emissions right now, we're still committed to more warm, warming in the system. To a certain level, for sure. Yeah. Then we would be able to limit um, global warming to below 1.5 degrees, but um, but uh, one degree essentially is, is what we've reached already. Yeah. So, Tabay, you've um, your paper uncovers quite a lot of stark differences between such a seeming small difference of 1.5 and 2, um, and that's what we want to spend most of the rest of the session on. But just before we get into that, um, it, it's probably important for us to, to say to listeners that these aren't actually figures that we're advocating, isn't it? That 2 degrees was really a political figure, um, not so much in that it was a wise figure, but more that it was um, something that people thought they had any show at all of getting to. The one one point five is just starting to recognise the science and the damage and um, the reality of the situation, isn't it? It's it's not that one point five is a good figure to aim for. It's, it's it's sort of like the best hope we can ever hope of, of, of restricting ourselves is to that. That is probably what it comes down to. Yes, but yeah. it's it's definitely also not a not a safe level of warming. Ideally, of course, we would um, really have managed to limit uh, global warming when we first realized that we were causing it. But um, <laughs> of course, we do have to, yeah, deal with the realities that that we have here. And um, limiting global warming to one point five degrees would still still mean quite substantial impacts um, in different sectors for different regions of the world. But it would probably be um, a manageable level whereas um, the the, incre- the 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 higher we go kind of um, the the more likely we are to really pass thresholds that um, that are no or are, would be much more difficult to manage mm. and when you're talking about 1.5 degrees that's a global average isn't it and there's quite a variation in terms of seasonal averages across, around the world and can you t- right. tell us a little bit uh, yeah, more about lo- lo- location variations and, and lo- seasonal averages. location yeah. and seasonal? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is really quite quite important. So it's not just that across the globe we would just experience a shift of temperatures of one point five or or two degrees um, in in average, but really um, it's it's. Um, it's quite likely that, for example, hot regions would get even hotter, um, especially during seasons that are already hot um, right now. So there might be really shifts in, in, in extreme temperatures, in peaks, in regions, in, in specific settings that are much, much higher than that. So this really refers to a global average of temperatures. And even other regions might get um, more cold extremes as well, which would, would, would even, um, relative to that, then increase the heat extremes to, to get to the average 1.5 and mm-hmm. 2 degrees. So it's really, it's really about the, the local differences and also looking at, at different sectors and different biophysical different biophysical impact settings, really. Mm. And that's why I think initially it was called global warming and now it's global change because Mm. it is the extremes in climate change. Yeah, Mm. sorry. So you just mentioned heat and that was one of those frightening uh, figures you gave. Tell us about what might happen to hot spells and things in particular in as much as you know in Australia. 
So in um, terms of changes in temperature extremes, it's quite clear that there's a global signal towards um, increasing heat extremes and also um, increases in the duration of, of heat waves. And one of the hot spots of change um, that we really see in this context is, for example, northern Australia, um, where at a two-degree warming, it is quite likely that um, heat waves, um, the current normal length of heat waves would be extended by um, 60 days and more annually, which is really, well, two months of so additional heat waves that, that might have to be expected. Additional two months. Additional to, to what we currently have. Wow. And these risks would really be substantially um, reduced if um, global warming were limited to 1.5 degrees to about 30 to 40 days. But that still, of course, uh, is an additional month of heat wave um, for the region. So... Yeah, that kind of uh, underlines again that 1.5 already um, would uh, would entail quite substantial. Uh, they changes. they sound catastrophic figures because all my knowledge of heat waves is is that it's not just how hot it gets to, but how long it extends. And as as they extend, um, nothing can survive. People just can't get cool. Uh, environments can't get cool. Plants can't survive, That's and so right. on. That's right. Um, well, certainly it's it's a combination with, with heat waves. So the duration um, um, absolutely increases the risks of, of catastrophic effects then of the heat waves. There are certain elements of potential adaptation so uh, um, th- that uh, both ecosystems as well as humans can acclimatize to a certain extent after they're, they're getting used to temperatures. But if um, there are some, some kind of physical thresholds that might be reached as well that would then... Um, that we would not necessarily be able to adapt to. So if uh, in urban centers, for example, temperatures increase to above 40 degrees, that, that is just reaching um, thermal thresholds that um, even with with adaptation, it would be really, really difficult to cope with and it would likely have quite severe impacts for human health and, and additional mortality rates due to heat waves. And also the human body can adapt if it's able to cool down overnight. But if the temperatures stay high overnight and during the day, then the the body's unable to cope with that sort of temperature increase over a period of time. And then the mortalities start to kick in. That's correct. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So related topic, water. What did your paper say about um, what's going to happen with rainfall and with water supply? Um, so the the projections for for global water availability are a lot more uncertain and uh, also a lot um, less clear um, at the global level in terms of a global signal. What we see here is really the emergence of more hotspots um, of change, both in terms of increasing precipitations in some area, as well as um, drying trends. So so longer durations of dry spells as well as, as well as changes in water availability. So some areas get wetter and some areas get drier. That's right. There's a tendency for those areas that are already quite dry to get even drier and those uh, regions that are um, already quite wet to get to get wetter and to also get more precipitation in a shorter window of time. So really um, um, that would would entail quite quite or has the potential to to have quite severe impacts for for yeah for a so lot of different areas sectors. like um, Africa, which is already suffering extreme dryness or Western Australia um, in for a really Really tough time. Um, yeah, that's right. That's that's what what the project projections seem to show. So one of the hot spots of change, for example, in terms of um, drying, is the Mediterranean region that is already quite dry um, at the moment. Um, 
And under a 1.5 degree warming, it's likely that further reductions in water availability on average of about 9% have to be expected for the region. And this would um, double this risk to 17% at a 2 degree warming. And that's really a region that has been um, suffering droughts already in the last years. Which um, Syria, I think, um, has a drought that has been attributed substantially to climate. That's right. Yeah, the recent drought, um, or yeah, it's it's been um, quite a long-term drought. That it has been attributed to climate change, actually. So it would be very unlikely that this um, this kind of severe drought would have happened without um, the anthropogenic interference. And um, in turn, this drought um, has also been attributed as a cause, so not not as as the one single cause, but really as a contributor to the current instability in the region. So mm. obviously, there is not a direct causality between drought and conflict, but it's definitely a contributor. And um, yeah, with increasing um, drying trends in in already problematic regions, mm. um, we might so face there is additional a problems. lot of work. You're yeah. right, saying yeah. that yeah. that um, political um, pointing to um, basically background climate change-related causes to a lot of political instability. And I think you mentioned also that in southern Australia that there are going to be more dry days and therefore more fires as well um, because of the fact that it's so dry. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, forest fires, of course, are or or, or fires in general um, have have a lot of contributing factors. A lot of it is also also management and and proximity to um, to human settlements, for example. But of course, um, one precondition is um, a dry well a dry climate essentially and mm. um for um southern australia definitely also a drying trend is projected um that is um supposed to be or or projected to be more severe um under a 2 degree warming significantly more severe than under a 1.5 warming and that of course would be a strong contributor to increased um fire risks yeah and so we're looking um from a selfish point of view in australia with the heat and and a rainfall what um what about in Northern Europe, in particular your, your home country of Germany? Um, you've been having some severe precipitation issues there, haven't you? That's right. The summer has seen um, – so our summer, obviously, is just uh, <laughs> is still ongoing, but the last months have seen quite severe um, extreme precipitation events where um, tiny, small little creeks that nobody really um, realized were there because they tend to fall dry, actually, in the summer, uh, turned into huge uh, rivers and, and destroyed houses and actually also ca- caused fatalities. And that's, that kind of um, extreme precipitation really is, is very unusual and we haven't seen that. That's amazing. And, in the, in and the did you get a difference between the two scenarios, the 1.5 well, yeah. and 2? Um, our, our projections show that um, Northern Europe really uh, emerges as a hotspot of extreme precipitation, both um, under a 1.5 and then increasing risks again um, to a two-degree warming. So events um, that we have... um, have experienced this summer might might actually yeah become, become routine become routine or mm. yeah much more common and they they were flash floods this summer were they the, rather than the um, long flooding period that you had a few years ago that's right they so these these creeks really turned into into floods within within minutes with yeah. with actually no time to react mm. so past flooding events um, in Germany that we've experienced were really um, caused by by um, 
precipitation or increased precipitation over a longer period of time. So mm. they still caused damage to houses, but um, they didn't cause um, any fatalities because um, th- there was um, enough time to actually react and to, mm. to prepare and to also secure secure houses to a certain extent and move move valuable mm. things. Whereas um, in these in these um, extreme precipitation events this summer, there wasn't any time to prepare at all because they were really surprised mm. floods. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So another topic dear to us in Australia is um, coral reefs and, and um, not dear to us, but of great concern to us is coral reef bleaching. Um, did your research show much uh, or a significant difference between probabilities of bleaching from the two temperature scenarios? Yeah. So coral reefs are actually probably one of the most sensitive ecosystems um, um, that are very sensitive to changes in, in temperature. And actually coral reef scientists have um, already uh, for for years back mentioned that uh, it's they, they see coral reefs as likely first indicators of dangerous anthropogenic interference. And we see that also um, in our in our assessments of impacts at 1.5 and 2 degrees, where at 2 degrees, unfortunately, it's very likely that um, essentially all coral reefs um, as, as early as uh, 2040 would be subject to frequent bleaching events, really um, leading essentially to, to severe degradation in, in all uh, tropical coral reefs. And these risks can really be substantially b- reduced under a 1.5 degree warming. We're still... Um, about 90% of corals will be affected in the mid of the century, but the risks will be reduced towards the end of the century um, towards about 70% of reefs um, being affected by severe bleaching and degradation. But still, there would be would be a good chance for recovery for parts of coral reefs. Uh, I, if I understood your graphs correctly, the, um, the 1.5 scenario showed a possibility, as you say, at the end of the century of, of um, some chance of recovery, but the two-degree scenario showed the median line still as flatlining as everything bleached, everything dead. Essentially, that kind of warming would be really detrimental to coral ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Of course, some adaptation might be possible, but um, this kind of adaptation to to this kind of thermal stress hasn't been observed so far Mm -hmm. in the ecosystem. So um, (laughs) it's quite unlikely that there's... yeah. Mm. that there's going to be large-scale adaptation possible to really adapt to these kind of changes. Mm. Yeah. Because, of course, there's also interacting um, effects. Not, it's not just temperature that affects um, ecosystems but also um, or coral, coral reef systems, but also pollution um, as well as ocean acidification, for example, Acidity and overfishing and, yeah. and, and these kind of things. And I think yeah. you mentioned in your discussion this morning at, at your talk that at the Great Barrier Reef has already got... 93% damage due to this year's bleaching That's right. and El Nino mm. effect. Yeah. So um, over the past two years, we've seen um, a quite strong El Nino um, phenomenon over over the globe, mm. um, which has led to a, a rather unprecedented global uh, mass bleaching event in corals. So um, virtually all coral reefs um, across the globe are affected by this bleaching. Um, and one very detailed study for the Great Barrier Reef that really um, looked closely at the different reef populations and um, the different parts of the reef shows that um, about 93% of the reef have have been affected by by the bleaching event as of April um, of this year. And of course, the the intensity of this bleaching is is different across different sections of the reef, and it's especially the northern areas that are affected by severe bleaching and also also quite a lot of mortality. 
Mm. And that'd be because the temperatures were probably warmer up there than in the that's, southern area. That's right. Yeah. I know your um, paper, um, Dr. Listener, didn't go into detail about um, global food production because it's complicated by all sorts of political and issues and, and um, whether land even gets underwater. But you, you did cover, I think, some uh, estimates of major crop productions and differences between those. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So, and the global global crop models look at um, usually four major major crops: so wheat, maize, soy, and rice, and um, look at, at general production patterns in that. And um, changes in yields don't necessarily imply any changes in food security, as you just mentioned, because there's a lot of management associated with that. But of course, they're an important indication as well of of the potential availability of important food crops. Um, and what we see really is that both at 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, there is quite a substantial risk in reductions of global yields in these important crops for all regions across the world and for all crops. Um, especially the tropical regions are, are quite at risk of substantial reductions, especially in wheat and, and maize yields. Mm-hmm. What's quite important about these agricultural or, yeah, the agricultural models or the, the yield um, yield changes is that it's likely or um, yeah it's likely that um, the increased uh, CO2 concentrations in the air will also lead to to a fertilization effect um, um, increasing yields potentially um, so there are some some indications that actually yields might might go up for some regions for some for some crops but these projections have to be treated with some with some care because uh, um, there are quite strong indications that this increased CO2 fertilization effect might lead to higher yields, but at the same time to lower ne- levels of nutrition in, in, the, in the same amount of, of kilograms of, of wheat. So then actually wouldn't really um, yeah, be, be very helpful. Benefit. Yeah, that's mm. right. And in addition, crops would also likely be more susceptible to pests and, and other diseases. That, that might destroy crops. I, I don't know if you've had time while in Australia to hear of one of our leading arch denialists and, and troublemakers called Andrew Bolter, um, but he actually said in the last couple of years that he put extra carbon dioxide in his greenhouse and, and the plants grew faster, so he'll be very disappointed to hear that it's only grown inferior plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they haven't lasted as long because yeah. the insects attack them. And they're, they're obviously <laughs> already attacked by pests like him. <laughs> so... Uh, can you talk to us a bit about risk levels? A lot of these discussions are talking about the chances uh, of getting to of various events happening, but we're actually talking about, say, a one in two or one in three or even a best one in ten chance of these things happening. But that's that's an insane level when you're talking about the possibility of major catastrophe. You don't get into a plane if you think there's only a, a two in three chance of it getting there. Have you covered that's any right. of that? Um, well, for for the for in yeah in general terms, um, there's there's several kind of classes of likelihood that that are usually assessed in climate science. So um, a fifty percent chance, so the median projections are actually used quite often to 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 look at impacts. And there's also usually a likely range, um, and that mm-hmm. is um, the sixty six percent range. So that would be two thirds. Yes. Essentially, there's still then a thirty three percent chance of of uh, much severer impacts um, than than we have. And um, these probabilities are especially important for for temperature pathways or kind of the likelihood with which we would actually be able to limit temperatures to to a certain level. 
as a result of uh, CO2 concentrations or emissions. And uh, these usually refer kind of to um, keeping temperatures likely below two degrees. So there is still a substantial risk of actually overshooting, overshooting these levels and, and much more, much more severe impacts. And as you said, these would not really be uh, acceptable levels of risks for anything um, that we usually do these kind of risk assessments for. But somehow for, <laughs> for climate, um, we're willing to accept much higher risks because it's, uh, it's so far into the future and it's not – the, an yeah, immediate. The so we yeah. build our house, or in this case, our planet, on on the basis of a fifty percent probability of, of not having these catastrophes, <laughs> but also a fifty percent probability of having them. Your your research covered a lot of different areas, and it was very comprehensive. Was there any one area that stood out to you that you weren't expecting to find the results to be so pronounced? I personally was extremely surprised about the coral reef projections, even though that has been an ongoing mm. ongoing topic that that it's not it's not like none of our none of our results were really surprising. They kind of corroborate um, a lot of the research mm. that that has been has been shown already. Um, so the, the the kind of risk assessment at, at different different levels of warming um, hasn't so far gone in as much details in terms of regional differentiation and as as many sectors. But really, um, it yeah kind of confirmed um, the, the more local studies, for example, and is is completely in line with the things that we. So see so when you say you were surprised, surprised about the coral reefs, were you yeah. surprised that at how sensitive they were and the, and the totality of the damage at the higher level or that there was some hope if we managed to pull back half a degree and surprised at, pleasantly surprised at that? Uh, well, no, I, I think that, that it was just a, a personal horrible surprise, kind of like a really bad mm. surprise because um, I hadn't followed uh, coral reef research in as much detail. But I think it, it also kind of supports all of the assessments that have been mm. done before and the observations that have been done. And, of course, the coral reefs support something like 25 to 30% of our ocean species, don't they? That's right. Mm. So they're a hotspot for for biodiversity, but also for for small island states. They're they're absolutely oh, crucial in life. in terms of um, economic um, well, the, the livelihood dependence essentially. So it's a tourism important for tourism, but also important for fisheries. But at the same time, they're also they have important buffering functions um, against uh, well tides and everything. So in combination with increasing sea levels and 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 reduced um, coral kind of protection. Um, it's it's really um, yeah. Mm, that's a very dire good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another so aspect of, of your paper is, as I understood it, basically you were looking at um, linear projections almost, whereas there is work that shows there are a number of, quite a number of major tipping points. I think something like thirty-seven abrupt shifts possible with with increasing temperature, um, and I think you covered briefly the probability of, of the number of those points that we might hit, the basically catastrophic tipping points. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yes, of course. So um, there there might be even more tipping points that, that we're just uh, not aware of so far, but the um, the study that I was referring to looked at, at 37 abrupt shifts that have been identified in the literature. And what, they really tried to assess... Um, that would be uh, permafrost uh, melting, for mm-hmm. example, that really then amplifies again um, climate change. Or, hmm? 
Hmm? Gives positive feedback That's to the problem. That's right. That's right. Or, or ocean circulation changes that really substantially shift. That that would then not be linear changes, but really would 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 lead to a substantial shift and complete changes in in, in um, biomes as well. For example, yep. mm. um, and that study really looked at um, it was a review of of previous research and looked at at the climate models that are available to identify the level of global warming that would trigger this these abrupt changes. And it came to the conclusion that about 50% of the tipping points that we know of would likely be triggered at a two-degree warming. And um, these risks could be substantially reduced um, if we limit one point, uh, limit warming to 1.5 degrees to about 20% of the identified tipping points. So that is quite – I mean, it's still it's a, a substantial number of tipping points that we would uh, likely face, um, but it would really reduce um, – a lot so of the risks of catastrophic changes. At two degrees, we, we roughly hit um, the probability of hitting 20 catastrophic tipping points. Um, if, we can take, if we can hold it at 1.5 degrees, we bring that back to a probability of about eight catastrophic tipping points. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's the reality of the situation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's it, right. It's, um, it's a good point to finish on, um, yeah. just to try and grasp all that in, information and detail. We'd really like to thank you, Dr. Listener, for coming and joining us because I know you're on a very tight schedule and just you, briefly flying through. You've given us the last couple of hours before you fly out of Australia and you've only been in Melbourne since 5 o'clock this morning or so. Thank you. Where, where can our listeners find out more about your work? Is it the Climate Analytics website or...? Yes, um, um, w- there's quite a lot of additional information on our website, which is uh, www.climateanalytics.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would, um, yeah, there's there's some direct links to briefings that we've prepared on the topic, but also um, referrals to, to the more, more detailed assessment, um, those, so the very technical uh, background paper that underlies a lot of the work that we've been talking about. Mm. Fantastic. So that's Climate Analytics, just those two words run straight together, .org. Dr. Listener, thanks heaps for your time. I hope you enjoyed your very brief stay in Australia and we've certainly appreciated having you on here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you and happy travels back. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.